There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. This is a WTOP original podcast. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. NATO's summit in Lithuania. Was it a success or did one of its key components not reach the mark? The group issued a communique that was designed to show Ukraine what it needed to do to get in. We will issue an invitation for Ukraine to join NATO when allies agree and conditions are met. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky did not take that well. He said in a tweet, we value our allies, but Ukraine also deserves respect. He said, furthermore, it's unprecedented and absurd not to set a time frame and to be vague about the conditions Ukraine must meet. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The NATO summit that just took place in Vilnius, Lithuania, came with some fireworks. Ukraine was not happy about NATO's, shall we say, dithering or waffling about when they can get in. And he made a comment. He said the invitation was absurd. But then things got turned around, and of course it all ended well. But what happened on the way to well? Joining us is Kurt Volker, Ambassador Kurt Volker. He's a distinguished fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. He's also the former U.S. ambassador to NATO. Ambassador, my first question is this. The NATO summit that took place in Lithuania um, produced a curious development. Um, NATO said, yeah, Ukraine. You're in. But then in the same statement, they said, but there's some conditions that have to be met. And Ukraine didn't respond very favorably to that. The president yeah. said it was absurd, President Zelensky. Um, tell us what your understanding of what NATO was trying to say is and what they actually ended up saying. Yeah. So NATO leaders wanted to thread a needle. They wanted to say that Ukraine's future is in NATO. That's part of the statement. They will become a member. Uh, but this is something that they've been saying since 2008. So they also gave it some, some nuts and bolts. So they increased the, the relationship to the NATO-Ukraine Council instead of a commission. They eliminated the need for a membership action plan. Uh, they promised to work more on Ukraine's interoperability with NATO. So they said, we're going to give some practical steps. 
But the other side of this, uh, this uh, vice that they were looking at is they don't want to commit to NATO membership now, because that's going to get allies into the war fighting Russia on Ukraine's side. And they don't want to turn this into a NATO-Russia war. So they avoided that. In doing so, they came up with this language that says that there are conditions and that uh, Ukraine will receive an invitation when all allies agree and uh, when the conditions are met. Well, this has uh, a lot of concerns that the Ukrainians then immediately raised. Uh, First off, it's highlighting that allies don't agree on NATO membership for Ukraine. Secondly, it's saying that there are conditions, but it's not clear what they are. And frankly, if you're looking at European allies today, Ukraine has one of the largest, most capable militaries, most battle-hardened. They are defending the frontiers of freedom quite literally. And so to say that they're not ready, I think, is is missing uh, or is incorrect. It's really not fair to the Ukrainians. It's actually NATO that's not ready. You know, you you said at the very beginning of this, they were trying to thread a needle and I don't think they did it. Um, And I just don't want to heard you say you don't think they did either. So how do they clean this up? I think President Biden has a chance tomorrow. He's giving a big speech. And I think there are two things that he needs to say that he has so far not yet said, but could. Uh, One of them is that Ukraine needs to win and we are here to support Ukraine's victory. Uh, It's got to be clear to Putin that he's going to lose the war. Uh, The second is that Ukraine will be a member of NATO. No ifs, ands, or buts, no hesitation, no conditions. They will be a member of NATO. I think that those two statements would be very strong and would still come out giving NATO a a strong way forward here. That's probably going to take some doing because I think President Biden has been one of those, along with the leader of Germany, that's been pretty adamant about this not being the time. I think President Biden said a little earlier in the week, it's not the right time for Ukraine. So from your perspective and your understanding, is there something that would make this the right time, uh, aside from the fact that Russia's doing what it's doing, and it's going to probably interpret this as a green light or at least um, an opportunity to continue doing what it's doing. So what would it take to change the mind of those that don't want Ukraine in immediately and, you know, uh, in, in, in the right position? Yeah. Well, you know, JJ, what the president said on the weekend is that Ukraine is not ready to be a a member of NATO now. Uh, I don't think anyone is arguing that they are ready to be a member of NATO now in the sense that the war is still going on. NATO is not ready to take in a country still at war. That's not the question. The question is, what is the long-term signal that we are sending to Putin and that we are sending to the Ukrainian people about where this is going? We need to send a very clear signal to Putin. He is not going to win this and that Ukraine will be a member of NATO and to the Ukrainian people as well, that we will be there for them as long as it takes, as the president likes to say, including by having them in as a member of NATO. Uh, Those are things that are consistent with what the president said on Sunday, uh, but they haven't been emphasized yet. So what do you make about, uh, what do you make of uh, Zelensky's response? Uh, It seemed as if he was angry, and I'm, I'm assuming, you know, rightfully so, but um, he said some things that were pretty Pretty harsh. He said uncertainty is weakness. And 
I'm wondering how you think all of this is going to play. Are people going to be understanding of that? Well, I think there will probably be some frustration with Zelensky's statements, but I think uh, we also have to have some sympathy. He's fighting for the life of his country. Thousands and thousands of Ukrainians have been killed at Russian hands. Uh, brutal the torturing of civilians, torturing of soldiers, bombing civilian targets, bombing maternity wards, kidnapping children. It is outrageous what the Russians are doing in Ukraine. So he is literally fighting for everyone's lives. And I think he does look at this and say, this is dithering on NATO's part. This is a sign of weakness. And we can't send Putin signals, signs of weakness. We need to send signals of determination and strength. So that's clearly where he's coming from. There will be some frustration with his remarks. There's no doubt about it. And I think that the task now is to still try to make clear these key things that Ukraine must win the war and we will help them do that. And they will be a member of NATO as soon as we can make that happen. I can't help but ask this question because of your experience with NATO, looking at your time and now, and just kind of getting a sense from you of maybe how the U.S. team and its counterparts are feeling right now because this is a difficult time that a lot of people didn't have to deal with but knew might be a possibility at some point because of Russia. So what's going on behind the scenes right now? That's a great question, JJ. I was never in a situation where most of the allies wanted to do something and the U.S. was holding them back. It was always the other way around. It was always the U.S., trying to push for solutions on policies and having to find ways to bring our allies along. Uh, So this is a very unusual circumstance. And I think uh, what people are probably uh, concerned about is the durability of U.S. commitment to NATO overall. Uh, Remember, it wasn't that long ago that President Trump called into question the U.S. willingness to defend NATO allies if they hadn't paid their share, or 2% of GDP. Uh, That was very troubling to NATO allies. And now to have another situation where um, they want to do something, but they see the U.S. is not quite there. This is going to raise some concerns. I saw a very interesting interview. I was watching BBC today, and one of the analysts that they spoke to said, essentially, what Vladimir Putin is waiting and hoping for, as far as the U.S. goes, is for former President Donald Trump to return to power and essentially put an end to the U.S. uh, and its involvement in NATO, and essentially um, that would possibly spell big trouble or maybe even the end of what Ukraine's trying to do. So do you get the sense that that may be a part of Putin's calculus? Um, I I, I don't disagree. I think that Putin is hoping that that is the way things play out, uh, that he gets a new President Trump and that that President Trump opposes Ukraine. Those are big ifs. I don't know that we know that those are true, but that I think is what Putin's thinking is. But I want to flip that around. We have longer time in front of us between now and the inauguration of the next U.S. president than we have seen since Russia's invasion in Ukraine in February last year. More time ahead of us. So we've seen a lot change in the last 15 months. Uh, We're going to see a lot more change before we get to that point. And frankly, if I were in the administration today, I'd be arguing for locking this down, both the Ukrainian victory and Ukrainian NATO membership, before we face the next presidential election. So in that vein, locking this down, what would your steps be? I mean, clearly 
Ukraine joining NATO is something at some point. But what would your steps be in terms of locking this down, making this a certainty that Ukraine defeats Russia uh, and essentially all of Europe is saved? Because as you've said before, right here on this program before, if, if Ukraine loses, so does the rest of Europe. Yes, you know, that's exactly right. And, and JJ, it's great, it's great that you emphasize that point because there won't be security in Europe again unless Ukraine is also secure. We've seen that Russia's wars affect everybody. Uh, so we have to get that part right. And the steps, uh, I would say the first steps now are going to be back to the battlefield. Give the Ukrainians everything we can to help them break through the front lines, retake their territory, um, cut off the Russian forces in Crimea, do everything they can to help the Ukrainians as quickly as we can. Um, that's the first step. The second step is then we have a NATO summit meeting in Washington, D.C. in August next year. And we should be using that meeting as the time to bring this all to closure. Uh, we want to be able to come up with a formula that the areas that Ukraine uh, uh, controls at that time will be brought into NATO. Um, Article 5 will not apply to any occupied territories, and we support Ukraine's recovery of those territories by peaceful means. That's probably the best we're going to do if we get to that point in August. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll have to first make sure we help the Ukrainians on the battlefield again. Well, speaking of that, that's half of this equation. The other half that I want to talk about is Russia hasn't done a heck of a lot to help itself. And one of the most important things I want to ask you about is what happened on June 24th, which yeah. that was a spectacle in many different ways. A lot of people watched it unfold. Few of us to this day understand what actually happened. So I want to hear from you what you thought as you watched that and what you think as you now are with the rest of us some days away from what happened. Uh, Certainly, uh, what we saw was a display of weakness uh, on the part of President Putin and the Kremlin. Uh, for a Russian armed force that, under Prigozhin's leadership, march into Russia, take over two cities, get on the road to Moscow, this was shocking. This, this showed everybody that the Kremlin was not fully in control. Since then, we've learned that Prigozhin didn't go to Belarus like, he, like the agreement said that he would. And I'm not surprised by that at all, because he would be a sitting duck there. Uh, he's probably staying where he has greater security for himself. Uh, second, we hear that he met with uh, Putin. This seems like an effort of Putin to make sure it looks like he's still in control, still in power. A, a need to demonstrate that is also a demonstration of the fact that he realizes he is weak. Uh, and it actually strengthens Prigozhin's image for him to have met with Putin in that way. And I don't think we've seen the last of this. I still think that Putin needs to demonstrate that he's the guy in charge if he's going to stay in power. And Prigozhin is a threat to that. So we, we've got many more shoes to drop. And a lot of this happening behind the curtain that we can't get behind. So as those shoes continue to drop, how do you assess the effort that Russia is putting forth on the battlefield in, in this war? Uh, at this stage, Russia is really struggling. Uh, they have lost a lot of ground, uh, even in the last uh, month or so, as Ukraine has begun its counteroffensive. This includes a lot of the territory around Bakhmut, which the Wagner forces fought so hard to take. 
that's now been taken back again. And uh, they are manning the defensive lines that they've put in place. These are tank traps and trenches and minefields. But the Ukrainians are gradually advancing through these very difficult obstacles. And I think with the cluster munitions that the U.S. is now providing, the speed of that advance might actually increase. And I don't think the Russians are in a position to, to do much to stop it. About those cluster munitions, what are your thoughts about the U.S. actually saying, okay, here, here they are. I mean, you know the story. They're, they're dangerous. Yeah. Uh, well, my thoughts on it are we should have done it a long time ago, and I'm glad we're doing it now. The reason people are concerned about cluster munitions as a weapon is that after a conflict, you often have bomblets that are unexploded or remain behind. They're found by civilians, and civilians can get hurt by that. But we have a situation where Russia is deliberately killing civilians in Ukraine today. Every day, every night, launching you know, kamikaze drones and missiles at Ukrainian cities, hitting apartment buildings, hitting schools. Uh, so we need to make that stop quickly if we want to protect civilians. And so I think it's better to give them the cluster munitions, help them advance in the war and clean up later than to say we can't use these weapons because civilians might get hurt when, in fact, civilians are dying anyway. So as you look at what happens, you know, from day to day there, you know, you know, there's a fire here, there's a fire there, there's, a, there's an attack here, there's an attack there, and keeping up with all of that. Um, I know Ukraine's getting more weapons. I know they're getting more training, and I know some big things are going to come to 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 the fight a little bit later, probably in the fall or next year, etc. But um, w once all of that is in place, will that be sufficient to win this war, or is there something else or some other things that need to take place? To, to, to bring this, this war to a definitive end? Well, you're referring to a couple things. The, the Abrams tank should get there this fall. The F-16 should get there early next year. We have still not agreed to provide ATACMs, the long-range uh, artillery systems, which we should also do. And I think that this is enough to help Ukraine cut through the lines of communication, break that southern land corridor that Russia now controls, that in turn will isolate Russian forces in Crimea, make them unsustainable there. That in turn, I believe will be a very strong political signal to Russia. Everyone in the Kremlin will see that Putin's war is failing. They're gonna to have to pull back some of their forces. And that I think is the beginning of the end of the war when they can get cut off. A Couple of more questions for you. I wanted to go back to Vladimir Putin's stability and what's happening inside the Kremlin at this point. Um, you know, you and others have indicated that he's weakened, uh, and some have suggested that if this, if 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 Russia loses this war, he could be replaced. Um, so that suggests that there are people and perhaps an apparatus in place more powerful than Vladimir Putin. Is that indeed the case? I think what you have in Russia is a system of strong institutions: the military the uh, intelligence services, including military and civilian intelligence services, state-owned enterprises, a lot of oligarchs, a lot of people in and around the Kremlin, and they care about the Russian state. They find it convenient when there's stability and a strong leader in the middle who keeps it all together, this all works, they, they line their pockets, the country stays together, Russia looks strong. When that begins to fail, I think they all become very concerned. Nobody knows how to change it. You know, nobody knows how to tell the emperor he has no clothes. 
and yet um, they actually have a lot of power there. That makes the regime fairly brittle when things go wrong and things can change very quickly. And then they can reestablish some other center of power, uh, maybe a weaker one, so that the institutions protect their own interests. We've seen this pattern in the Soviet Union. If you remember when Brezhnev died, we went through a series of Soviet leaders who were deliberately chosen to be weak leaders because these other centers of power wanted to protect their own interests. I think we're looking at something like that in the future. So then that brings me to this question, then. Um, are we better off? with a Vladimir Putin or Vladimir Putin 2.0? Well, the answer is that it's we can't choose. It's not up to us. We're not the Russian people. We're not the Russian elites who are going to make this happen. We currently have a situation of a guy with a failing state, a nuclear arsenal, and a crazy war in Ukraine where he's committing genocide. I think that's bad enough, and I think we have to stop it. How the Russians figure out what happens after, that's up to them. All right. Um, the final thing I'd like to ask you is um, you're very good at um, putting things on the table that we haven't thought about. And I think that's just one of the things that makes interviews with you always uh, a true pleasure. So what is it that we haven't spoken about or talked about or thought about today that you think is important as we consider all that's going on? And there is a heck of a lot going on right now. Yeah, I think the, the number one thing I'd highlight today, JJ, is that we are looking at these issues of the NATO summit, Swedish membership, what the language is about Ukraine's membership with a very short-term lens. And I think we have to have a long-term lens. NATO has one job and has had the same job for 75 years, which is protect the security of Europe, defend Europe and deter aggression against it. We should be learning the lesson now that in order to do that, we can't have these gray zones sitting around in Europe that Putin will attack because it ends up affecting all of us. Uh, and if he succeeds in Ukraine, he's going to look at other pieces of the Russian empire like the Baltic states or Finland. Uh, he needs to be stopped in Ukraine for that reason. But then to prevent the next war, looking ahead, we have to make sure that Ukraine is in NATO and these other gray zones are in NATO so that he is not tempted. Ambassador Kurt Volker, thank you very much. Thank you, JJ. It's always a pleasure to be with you. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode. On July 12th, just hours before the NATO summit ended in Vilnius, Lithuania, North Korea launched another missile. An ICBM, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. It flew over 70 minutes. Uh, and it probably has a range that could touch the whole of the United States, uh, a significant, uh, successful ICBM launch. Joe Detrani is a former director of the U.S. National Counterproliferation Center. A, a very clear message to the United States. Yeah, so my, that was going to be my next question. Then what is this message? Uh, well, that uh, you know, the United States is uh, within our reach. So the question again is, what does North Korea want? That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. 
That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.